Welcome to the Temple Baptist Church Podcast, coming to you from Swan River, Manitoba, Canada. This week, we join Pastor Neil Effa as he preaches from Obadiah verses 11 to 13 in part four of a sermon series called The Poison of Pride, with this message from November 17th titled The Guilt of Unjust Gain. More than 100 years ago, the RMS Titanic hit an iceberg just before midnight, sending it to the bottom of the North Atlantic in the early hours of April 15, 1912. At that time, Titanic was the largest and most luxurious ship afloat. No expense had been spared in her construction. With new technology and modern advances, the ship garnered the attention and the admiration of the world. It had been billed the safest and most luxurious ocean liner ever built. She boasted opulent staterooms, luxurious dining rooms, sumptuous smoking rooms with ornate ceilings and magnificent candelabra, and an elegant grand staircase. She had elevators, libraries, a swimming pool, a Turkish bath, a gymnasium, a squash court, even an eight-piece orchestra, everything to satiate the desires of 325 first-class passengers, as well as all the rest. She was at the leading edge of technology, inspiring awe and wonder in everyone who saw her. And most amazing of all, experts of its day hailed this ship of dreams as practically unsinkable. In fact, one deckhand even went so far as to say God himself couldn't sink the ship. Thomas Andrews, one of the designers of Titanic, boasted the ship is as perfect as human brains can make. These were idle boasts that would, of course, prove disastrously hollow within a few days. Through a combination of fateful human decisions and unforeseen events, the ship's vulnerability was cruelly exposed and she sank in the space of two hours and 40 minutes with the resultant loss of more than 1500 lives. Only 700 passengers survived to tell their stories. However, this disaster was caused by more than the combination of these circumstances. After fully investigating the reasons for the Titanic sinking, Senator William Smith reported indifference to danger was one of the direct and contributing causes to this unnecessary tragedy. And James Cameron in his book, Titanic wrote, the ship was not destroyed by an iceberg alone. It was also destroyed by a state of mind. And the book speaks of an unforeseen force that would ultimately lead to that era's downfall. That force being arrogance. At the time, the Titanic Titanic seemed invulnerable And as a result, people took great pride and put tremendous confidence in this ship. Now, fast forward 100 years, and things haven't changed much. Our society is also dominated by a spirit of pride, a spirit of arrogance. With haughty hearts, we use phrases like, never depend on anyone, save face at all costs, stand alone. And what is the root of this advice? It's nothing but pride. Pride is like a cancer that eats, that corrupts, and corrodes. It affects how we look at ourselves 
and how we look at others. It's what we feel when we've made a mistake, but refuse to admit it. Pride causes us to stand our ground when we ought to ask forgiveness. Pride lashes out and spews illogical nonsense because it has no real basis for battle. Pride can blind us into thinking the world owes us an apology or that God owes us an apology. Like the builders of the Titanic, we take such great pride in our human accomplishments, in our scientific advancements, in our technological progress, and in our personal achievements. And yet so often God is left out of the picture. We fail to acknowledge that God is in control of all things and what we have comes from his good hand. The God of the Bible who is often derided as irrelevant or even non-existent by today's generation has a great deal to say about human pride and notions of invulnerability. We're told that God resists the proud and that pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. The prophet Obadiah said it well. He wrote the pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Speaking to those who felt they were unsinkable, Obadiah teaches us that pride blinds us to the truth. We are in a preaching series from the book of Obadiah, the shortest book in the Old Testament, which I've entitled the poison of pride. Obadiah prophesied against the nation of Edom, descendants of Esau, who hated and despised Israel, the descendants of Jacob. And of course, you know, Esau and Jacob were brothers. The cruelty of the Edomites towards the Israelites reached its ultimate expression when the Babylonians attacked and overthrew Israel. And although Edom did not formally and politically align herself with Babylon, she aided in the in Israel's destruction. Obadiah describes it in this way. When they were invaded in reference to Israel, you in reference to Edom, when they were invaded, you stood aloof, refusing to help them. Foreign invaders carried off their wealth and cast lots to divide up Jerusalem. But you acted like one of Israel's enemies. You should not have gloated when they exiled your relatives to distant lands. You should not have rejoiced when the people of Judah suffered such misfortune. You should not have spoken arrogantly in that terrible time of trouble. You should not have plundered the land of Israel when they were suffering such calamity. You should not have gloated over their destruction when they were suffering such calamity. You should not have seized their wealth when they were suffering such calamity. Obadiah identifies eight transgressions Edom committed against Israel, all in that spirit of pride and arrogance. Obadiah said that Edom stood aloof from Judah in her time of calamity. Like spectators, they stood back and watched everything unfold without stepping in to help. Edom also rejoiced over Israel's destruction. She spoke proudly or mockingly boasted of Israel's distress. Then she entered Jerusalem for the purpose of violating the people. We also read that she gloated over Israel's calamity. And then she robbed Israel in the time of her crisis by pillaging her possessions. Edom also cut off the escape routes to the Judean desert, making flight from persecution for the people of Israel impossible. Impossible. 
And finally, she is accused of seizing the Jews, delivering them into the hands of the Babylonians, into the hands of her enemies. Over the past several weeks, we have considered the symptoms of Edom's pride. And because of her impregnable location, she was situated in the lofty heights and the rocks. Because of her wealth and her wisdom, we discovered that one, of her, one symptom of her pride was self-sufficiency. And in light of that, it's interesting to note that as you read through scripture, nowhere do you find or do you read of Edom worshiping gods, whether it be the God of heaven, the true God, or gods made from wood and stone like the surrounding nations. And I think the reason being is that rather than putting her trust in God or in other gods, she put her trust in herself. She was her own God. Her trust and her confidence was in her strength and in her might. And like Edom, we too are tempted to trust in ourselves, to trust in our accomplishments, in our achievements, in our ingenuity, in our work ethic. A spirit of pride can also often overtake us. However, a spirit of humility is required if we're going to root self-sufficiency from our lives. Humility involves submitting to the rule and to the reign of God. Another symptom of Edom's pride was her indifference. As Judah was being attacked, Edom stood as a spectator, as I mentioned before, and she watched the Babylonians ransack the nation without stepping in to help her relative. And like Edom, we too can become indifferent to the plight of the needy around us. So often you can read uh, articles and stories of, of a crime taking place and people standing back and watching what's happening without getting involved. So often you and I can close our eyes to the distress and and we hang a sign over our heart that says, do not disturb. I don't want to get involved in the lives of those who are in need. The cure for indifference is compassion. It's a heart that not only feels the pain of others, but becomes involved in the lives of the vulnerable. Well, this morning we're going to look at another symptom of Edom's pride. And in the text, we discover that she was guilty of unjust gain. In the book of Proverbs, we read this. Whoever is greedy for unjust gain troubles his own household, but he who hates bribes will live. And earlier on in Leviticus chapter 25, verse 17, God commanded the Hebrew people in this way. He said, do not take advantage of each other, but fear your God for I am the Lord, your God. In light of these verses, we can conclude that unjust gain is taking advantage of another for personal gain. Economics was certainly a factor in the feud between Edom and Judah. As I mentioned earlier, when Israel was attacked by Babylon in 587 BC, Edom helped the invaders track down and capture the fleeing Jews. And in reward, Nebuchadnezzar allowed the Edomites to participate in the looting of Jerusalem. Therefore, she swooped in and helped herself to the spoils. Not only did Edom mock Israel during their struggle, she actively participated in her misery by pillaging the land. Edom looted Jerusalem and helped defeat them. Even today, there are people without scruples who take advantage of others and circumstances for their own gain. And I believe that this is a symptom of pride and arrogance. 
It's a, it's a belief that one can do whatever they want for their own purposes, for their own advancement with a power that they have to control other people. In the new Testament, there are a few Greek words which are translated into English as greedy or covetous, depending on the context and the specific English translation. But one Greek word sometimes translated as greed is also translated as exploit, extort, excuse me, extortion or robbery. And this tells us that at least one form of greed is characterized by an inclination or motivation to cheat to trick or to abuse others for personal gain. Stop and think of it. False advertising, misrepresentation of goods and services, price gouging, swindling, scamming, conning, bilking, milking, manipulation, exploitation, entrapping people in a financial commitment they can't keep, Inflating the expenses which are charged to another and paid to you. Padding the price. Frivolous lawsuits. Any way of taking advantage of another for economic enrichment. These are sinful behaviors of unjust gain. On a more personal level. Consider these acts. A person at work who takes credit for the hard work of others and who takes a larger share of the bonus money or commission for sales, even if he or she didn't actually do anything to earn it. An employee who takes lavish vacations at the expense of his employer by claiming that the vacations are business trips, even when they really aren't. A person who takes supplies home from work, even though he isn't entitled to. Any of those things we do at the expense of others for personal gain reveals our pride. We are guilty of unjust gain whenever we do something to enrich ourselves in a way which violates God's command not to take advantage of other people. If we do, we're showing a disrespect for a fellow human being as well as for God. So in light of this, how do we overcome this symptom of pride? How do we root from our lives the desire to take advantage of others for our own personal gain? Well, the cure for this is generosity. Regarding generosity, Tim Keller writes, generosity means living for God and others, not for ourselves. It embodies a lifestyle shaped by a deep conviction that in Christ, we find true riches and abounding treasure. It embodies a lifestyle shaped by a deep conviction that in Christ we find true riches and abounding treasure. He goes on to say, generous people do not use others for personal gain, demand their rights be upheld at all costs, or hold grudges against those who offend them. When you and I think of the word generosity, so often we think of money. But generosity involves so much more. Generosity impacts our relationships. In Christ, we receive forgiveness of sins, which enables us to be generous in our relationships and forgive without limits. Generosity influences our hospitality because we have been welcomed into God's kingdom. We generously extend hospitality to others, expecting, not expecting repayment. Generosity is instrumental in our service. 
Jesus, by giving up his own life for us, empowers us to give up all of ourselves in service to him and to others. God's radical generosity to, tr- to us transforms the way we regard everything that we own. Experience, experiencing true riches in Christ enables us to use our wealth wisely to welcome others into God's kingdom. A true encounter with Jesus transforms the way we use power, not for ourselves, but generously to serve others. Reverend Matt O'Reilly, writing about generosity, says that there are at least three foundational truths concerning this matter of generosity. He says, first of all, generosity begins with Jesus. In other words, generosity is grounded in the gospel. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, as Paul invited the Corinthians to participate in the collection for the saints in Jerusalem, he substantiated his appeal by pointing to the cross. He wrote to them, for you know the generous act of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes, he became poor. Paul is thinking of the incarnation in which the son of God humbled himself to take up a fully human life. And he offered himself in love to die for our sins. For a time, Christ gave up the riches of heaven for a life of poverty. And Paul sees this as an expression of generosity. He understands that the self-giving love of Christ reveals a heart of God as a heart of extravagant generosity. And Paul's invitation to give is a call to embody the generous character of God revealed to us through his son, Jesus. Jesus suffered so that we could be redeemed and reconciled to God. He denied himself in order to lavish us with grace. His body was broken so that we could be made whole. Isn't generosity an excellent way to describe the grace that comes to us through Jesus? The second foundational truth that Matt O'Reilly points to is generosity is about discipleship. In the life of, if the life of Jesus is characterized by generosity, then the call to follow Jesus, he says, means generosity is a matter of discipleship. Jesus calls his followers to deny themselves, take up their cross and to follow him. We've already seen that the cross is an expression of godly generosity. That means that the call of Jesus to take up the cross is a call to embody godly generosity. Nothing that we have in this life is exempt from the call to follow Jesus. All of life must be surrendered to the Lordship of Christ, including the way we use the resources that God has entrusted to us. We need to use our resources and we need to see our resources as opportunities to honor Christ by obeying the command to take up our cross and follow him. And thirdly, he says, generosity generates spiritual growth. If generosity is a matter of following Jesus, then resistance to growing more generous puts limits on the levels of spiritual maturity that you and I can attain. Paul makes this point in second Corinthians chapter nine, when he says the one who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And the one who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. What is that? Which Paul is getting to in this verse. I think Paul means something like this. Those who embody the generosity of God by sowing extravagantly with all their resources will reap the harvest of growing in holiness and in godliness. Paul 
God, God, Paul says, will increase a harvest of your righteousness and you will be enriched in every way for your great generosity. Those who imitate Jesus by giving generously will grow in godliness as you grow closer to God in Christ. So without this attitude of generosity, there will be aspects of the character of Christ into which we will never grow. And if we do not grow in generosity, we will simply take advantage of people for personal gain. You see, when we choose to live generously, fruit will be produced in our life. Generosity produces greater contentment. Many have said that the secret to a happy life is not having all you want, but wanting what you have. Paul says it this way. Godliness with contentment is great gain. The greatest gain is contentment. When you and I are able to be content with our situation, with our resources, with all that we have at our disposal, that is great gain. Generosity will also increase our love for the kingdom of God. Putting your treasure in a place actually makes you begin to love that place more. And that's why I think Jesus said, and I think this is what he meant when he said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The more that you and I generously invest into the kingdom of God, that is where we will find our heart. That is where we will find our delight. That will be the source of our joy. Generosity will also clarify our purpose. Only as we begin to live generously, do we begin to discover a real sense of purpose and legacy in this life. And it will also produce a more loving heart. Stinginess shrinks your heart. Stinginess shrivels my heart. It breeds isolation. But giving opens you up. It opens me up. And an open heart is much happier. An open heart is a joyful heart. Again, most of us think generosity is something that God wants from us. But according to Paul, it is something he wants for us. He wants us to be joyful people. For us to experience a joy of generosity. And so these four fruits are just some of the things that God makes you and I to abound in when we are generous. When we are worried about what we'll have to give up, we need to think instead about what God wants us to gain through generous giving, the generous use of our resources. In his book, Run with the Horses, Eugene Peterson tells how he saw some birds teaching their young to fly. Three young swallows were perched on a dead branch that stretched out over a lake. One adult swallow got alongside the chicks and started shoving them out toward the end of the branch, pushing them, pushing them, pushing them. The end one fell off. Somewhere between the branch and the water below, the wings started working and the chick was off on his own. The same was true for the second one. The third one, however, was not to be bullied. At the last possible moment, his grip on the branch loosened just enough so that he swung downward, then tightened again with a bulldog tenacity. And the parent pecked at the desperately clinging talons until it was more painful for the chick to hang on than risk the insecurities of flying. 
The grip was released and the wings began pumping. The mature swallow knew what the chick did not, that it would fly, that there was no danger in making it do what it was designed to be. Peterson went on to write, birds have feet and can walk. Birds have talons and can grasp a branch securely. They can walk, they can cling. But flying is their characteristic action. And not until they fly are they living at their best, gracefully and beautifully. He went on to say, giving is what we do best. It is the air into which we were born. It is the action that was designed into us before our birth. Some people tried desperately to hold on to themselves to live for self. They look so bedraggled and pathetic doing it, hanging on to the dead branch of selfishness and self-centeredness, afraid to risk themselves on the untried wings of giving. Yet many people don't think they can live generously because they have never tried. We were created to live generously by giving generously of our time, talents, and finances. We were meant to soar. He goes on to say, Howard Hughes certainly illustrates his biblical truth. In his youthful days, he was a typical playboy with a passion for pleasure-seeking and an aversion for giving. As he grew older and turned an inheritance into a vast fortune, he became more and more closed-fisted. He was stingy, selfish, and self-centered. He let his wealth create an ever-increasing barrier between himself and other people. Needless to say, he died a hopeless, miserable recluse. Without question, we're created to soar on the wings of giving. In sharp contrast, Peterson says to Hughes was George Mueller, who, like Hughes, inherited wealth, but established a lifelong pattern of generous sharing. His life was characterized by serving the needs of others. He was not stingy, selfish, or self-centered. He poured out his life and wealth, caring for thousands of orphans in London during the war. His life was marked by joy, fulfillment, Meaning, purpose, and contentment. Generosity leads to life itself. Generosity leads to life itself. N.T. Wright, in his book, Luke for Everyone, says, The kingdom that Jesus preached and lived was all about a glorious, uproarious, absurd generosity. You and I, who have responded to faith in Jesus Christ, have been ushered into God's kingdom. Our lives are under his rule. And the kingdom that Jesus preached and lived was all about a glorious, uproarious, absurd generosity. So if you find in your life that root of unjust gain, taking advantage of others for personal advancement, begin to root it out by developing a lifestyle of generosity, a lifestyle of giving, to be generous as our Heavenly Father has been generous to us through His Son, Jesus. Let's pray together.
Father, in this country in which we live, we have been blessed beyond measure. And yet we hear the message every day to work for more and more and more. But Father, you have called us to live generously. And as we are able to make our living and as we are able to accumulate things, they are not to be for ourselves, but for the use in your kingdom to advance your gospel, to give people a taste of what the kingdom of God is really like. And so if we find ourselves in that cycle of earning and saving, of earning and saving all for ourselves, Father, I pray that we would live, learn to live the life of generosity, that we would live with open hands and open hearts, sharing of what you have entrusted to us, not only of our money, but Father, of our time and our talents, the abilities that you have given to us, to use the education that, that we have, have uh, arrived at to, to bless other people and to serve other people. Father, there are so many things that are at our disposal to be used by you, to be given to you, to be used generously. Move us toward that end. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Thanks for joining us. We hope we were able to provide wisdom and insight in your faith journey. If you would like to connect with us, you are welcome to join our service every Sunday morning at 1030. For more information, you can find us at facebook.com slash River. And if you would like to find more episodes of our podcast, go to anchor.fm slash Church or search on your favorite podcast app.